Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for April 5th. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I want to wish everyone out there a happy National Deep Dish Pizza Day. If you're like me and you think that deep dish pizza is the devil, I would also recommend that you uh, celebrate First Contact Day, because on this day, 40 years from now, Zephram Cochran will launch the uh, first warp flight and attract the attention of some Vulcans. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a movie about it called Star Trek First Contact. I highly recommend you watch it after the rundown because we've got a great lineup of news this week. Lots of stories that we want to bring to you. And joining me is my, um, you know, very uh, Vulcan-like co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mr. Tom. I think that's a documentary, actually, uh, Star Trek First Contact. Um, also, I need to mention that it is also, yes, National Flash Drive Day. So whatever that's worth. Uh, it's, it's worth a little bit of storage in your pocket. And as luck would have it, we actually have a couple of stories about storage in the rundown this week. And kicking those off is a story about quantum because they've decided to throw their hat into the ring uh, for software storage. Their newest offering is called Myriad, and it's a flashed focused solution for file and object storage. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting in the release was that they included a research paper and they talked about the fact that traditional software storage products um, are not very good. They just are a little bit faster than the storage they're attached to when you consider traditional rotating media. However, um, the new solution from Quantum kind of re-architects the whole situation because of things like NVMe and RDMA that basically require the software to be very performant. Um, I dug into some of the details. There was a great uh, diagram in the news article that we've linked. Uh, some things that I thought were interesting. Uh, everything is connected with 100 gig Ethernet backbones, which, you know, makes a networking guy like me uh, smile a little bit. Uh, it's connecting all of their NVMe storage nodes, as well as the load balancers that figure out where things need to go and all of the control nodes. Um, Steven, what are your thoughts on Quantum Myriad? Yeah, I got to say that this thing is pretty darn cool. Um, you know, Quantum is one of those companies I think that maybe some people think they know because it's been around for a very, very long time through a couple of different storage media. Um, I think a lot of people think of it as a tape company or a hard drive company from back in the day. But as you said, uh, Quantum's got a next generation product here, and I think they should be pretty proud of what they've got. Uh, one thing I'll call attention to is that Myriad was designed by none other than Brian Palowski, also known as VP. I have known BP for a very long time. He was apparently employee number 18 at NetApp, um, which is where I first encountered him. And then he was chief architect at Pure Storage. And now he's been at Quantum for a few years. I, I believe that they probably brought him in to do this, basically, give us a next generation product. This is a very smart person, a very good storage architect, and someone who really knows what he's doing. And anytime you set somebody like that loose with a clean sheet of paper, you're going to get something pretty cool. So far, what we're seeing here looks pretty good. Now, it's obviously too early to judge it. Um, haven't had our hands on it. Haven't even had a, a deep uh, dive, though storage field day would be awesome. Now, um, if, if it is what it looks like, as you said, Tom, it's all based around next generation uh, concepts, next generation technologies, and it really is flash forward in a way that companies like Pure Storage and Vast Data and Store One also are. So frankly, I, I'm really impressed by what they've put together here, and I just can't wait to learn more about it. 
Tom, Cisco announced that they're picking up Lightspin for around $200 million. The Israeli-based security company focuses on posture management for cloud and containers. Lightspin came out of stealth in 2020 and had raised around $25 million from its investors. This is the second security acquisition from Cisco in as many weeks, and they've picked up Valtix just a month ago at the beginning of March. Tom, uh, what do these security moves mean to Cisco customers? I think Cisco is trying to provide value up and down the stack that isn't directly tied to having hardware running in your organization. When you think about the number of customers that are still kind of looking at those cloud transitions, you know, how can I provide uh, an, an appropriate level of security for my users? What does that even look like? I mean, the number of times that you and I have not only talked to security professionals, but also done things like, you know, Tech Field Day Showcase or uh, roundtable discussions, on-premise uh, podcasts about this old method of thinking about, you know, oh, stick a firewall in front of it. How hard can it be? Well, the answer is really hard. And all you have to do to know that is see how your organization looks to people who could be attacking it. Well, how can you do that? Oh, I know. You use a program like Lightspin. That's what posture management basically is. Lightspin, now part of Cisco, soon to be, will go out and they will actually look at your entire organization and your entire posture and say, you need to fix these things. You need to secure this. You need to change that. You need to put guardrails on this part so that people can't get in that way. That is something very valuable to organizations that think they have the right stuff in place, but they need a little extra push. And if you include that as part of a um, security licensing model, like the one that Cisco really is trying to put together with some of their SecureX stuff, you know, it's like, okay, well, you can deploy the, the XDR solution here and you can do this, you can do that. Oh, by the way, you click this button and the new thing, you know, call it whatever you want, Cisco posture management, will go out and it'll tell you what everything looks like from, from outside in. And I think that that is something that cannot be understated for companies because that kind of um, assessment is critical to what we see today with the fact that all it takes is a week, a bad week for your security team. And all of a sudden you're breached. And we actually have a, a story about a breach coming up where it's like, man, if only they had had a product like this, maybe they could have avoided the avenue that people use to get in there. So I'm kind of excited about this. And I know that the, the Lightspin people are, because let's face it, a 10x exit is pretty good for them. So I'm kind of curious to see how Cisco integrates this in. I think this is going to be part of their bigger SecureX um, Cisco umbrella portfolio. I think it's just a matter of how they approach it and, and what they do with the team once the acquisition is closed. All right, Stephen, um, we saw a big announcement yesterday. Vast Data is now part of the HPE GreenLake ecosystem. The company announced that they are providing scalable file storage technology for HPE's on-demand storage service. Now, HPE is no stranger to storage. I mean, they have a lot of offerings that are available, but what does this mean by partnering with Vast? Because I know that they have other partnerships as well. Stephen, what's the magic here? Yeah, I think that's the interesting angle to this story for me. I mean, no offense to HPE, but you're right. They do have quite a few different storage platforms. And the company has been working for decades to unify and um, simplify their storage lineup. Uh, thankfully, they're all under the Elytra name now. And they've got sequential numbers that sort of indicate what level they are. But even so, it's a little confusing when you look at this and you say, wait, didn't HPE already have... Uh, file as a service uh, with the Cumulo-powered offering. 
And the answer is, yeah, pretty much. Um, but this is uh, was kind of a hole in the GreenLake offering because they didn't have really a truly next generation competitive file services offering. And now they do. So essentially, HPE has a high-end um, uh, modern uh, software plat or hardware platform for storage software called Elytra MP, uh, along with Aruba switches and uh, just a bunch of Flash JBoF uh, trays that could run um, a variety of things, including HPE's own block storage software. Uh, their uh, vast data has tuned their system to be a basically a, a, an alternative operating system running on this HPE base, and then has further tuned the system to fully integrate with HPE's GreenLake. So essentially what we've got here is HPE having a third-party company being a first-party component of GreenLake in a very important area. If you're not familiar with storage, uh, file storage is not just for file servers anymore. It's also for lots and lots of applications. And in fact, this is one of the most important areas of storage. And to have this be powered by a company like Vast Data, frankly, is a huge, huge vote of confidence in Vast's solution and Vast's ability to deliver, integrate, and support that solution in a huge customer base like HPE's. So again, I really feel like this story is more about Vast than HPE, and the folks at Vast should be cheering. They should be hollering from the rooftops how great their product is, and everyone else in this space, including uh, familiar names like NetApp, uh, IBM, uh, we just saw Spectrum Scale or uh, IBM Storage Scale at our Storage Field Day event recently, uh, Dell's PowerScale. Um, and of course, Cumulo, who previously powered this, um, all those companies should be looking at this with a little bit of concern because effectively what we've got here is a vote of confidence in vast data that I think is going to resonate beyond this GreenLake announcement. Tom, Western Digital suffered from a big data breach over the weekend that's still causing issues for users. Uh, WD released information that attackers had accessed the WD network over a week ago and that the company was trying to ascertain what the impact of this breach is. Users of the MyCloud service can definitely tell the company about the impact because they've currently been able, unable to access their data stored in the personal cloud service, even if the hardware is located in their home. All services related to MyCloud are currently offline with no estimate on when they'll be restored. Tom, uh, I know this is a storage story, but it's really more of a security story. Tell us what's going on and how will they resolve this? Well, they're going to resolve it by having to pay a lot of money to people to figure out what's going on. So this is like literally about a week old. WD announced that there was a breach and, and that, that's pretty commonplace. I mean, literally, if we wanted to do a breach story every episode of the rundown, we could probably pick from any one of a number. But what stood out to me is the fact that this locks down the MyCloud service, even if I have a, a, a portable unit sitting here, like literally I can put my hands on it, I can no longer access the data on there because it's locked out. Like the 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 service, the you know notifications, proxying, all that other stuff, gone. I'm sure the data is probably still on there somewhere, I hope. But, you know, uh, uh, we we must, again, once again, repeat Foskett's maxim. If you work in storage, your only job is to not lose data. And, and you did. I mean, whether or not you can't access it, it doesn't matter. The data is not where you need it when you need it. So uh, I'm going to put on my speculation fedora real quick. You know, chapeau. 
Um, I think they got hit with ransomware. I think that what happened was is that the guy, whoever attacked them, got in and blasted the control systems with ransomware. And that's why you're seeing my cloud completely down. It's because all of the command and control servers that allow you to access your data through my cloud are encrypted. They're offline. Everything is offline. And so I think what's going to happen is, is the either WD is going to have to pay the ransom or they are going to have to hope that they had good backups, hopefully not stored in my cloud. And uh, then they're going to have to spend time and effort and money with triage trying to get those back online. Uh, that is, again, complete speculation. Allegedly, I do not know what happened because WD hasn't told us what happened. And uh, according to the reporting and the articles that we've linked, they're not answering their emails either. So I think what we're ultimately going to find out is that something like this happened, but we won't know about it for six or eight months. So if you're a MyCloud user, have an extra cup of coffee, take a couple of deep breaths, your kids' pictures are probably safe. The question is going to be how easily can you get them off of the MyCloud service? If WD doesn't get back to you pretty soon, it might be time to consider finding a way to get into that drive through without using MyCloud. And then uh, later, uh, coming up with a different solution. You may be expatriating your stuff from the cloud faster than you think. But no, this is WD needs to say something. They need to come out with um, you know clear um, statement of what happened, why things are offline, what the expectation is, is that people are going to get their data back. Because if they don't, uh, boy, can you imagine the uh, what would happen to a, a data storage company that can't be trusted to store your data anymore? That would be really bad for them. All right, Stephen, a uh, big announcement from Sios. They announced LifeKeeper version 9.7 last week, and there is an exciting new feature if you're a SAP HANA user. Um, LifeKeeper now has multi-target replication that allows you to have more options to keep your data consistent. Um, some of the features that they've added in 9.7 include the ability to add extra nodes to the replication cluster. Uh, you can be you are able to restart replication from a failed node and have it take over as the master. And if there is an issue with replication, you can do failback. You can resume replication. Uh, lots of really exciting stuff for people that are trying to keep the data consistent. Um, Stephen, you had a chance to sit down with Sios and talk to them about this. What do you think stands out from this announcement? Yeah, you may not be familiar with Sios, um, but they are quietly building a very, very cool product. And with this announcement, I'm going to just come out right out and say it, that if you use SAP HANA, um, you really, really owe it to yourself to check out this product. Um, I, I don't usually you know, endorse products that I don't haven't really used, but man, this thing sounds pretty cool. Essentially, what they're doing is they're enabling high availability of SAP HANA environments, not just within a region, but across regions. So essentially, you can have um, basically uh, a failover within your region um, that will continue to operate. You can fail back very, very simply. You can fail over outside the region. You can fail over within and continue replicating outside. You can fail back inside. You can fail back to the other one. Essentially, any combination you can think of as um, for high availability of SAP HANA it sounds like Sios is doing that here. And that's, you know, pretty amazing. This is one of those battles that those of us in the storage and high availability uh, world have been fighting for a long time. One of the problems with solutions like this traditionally is that it was possible to do it, but it was so incredibly fidgety 
that even if you could figure out how to get it working, it was just incredibly difficult to keep it working and to make it happen, you know, when you need it the most is when things are failing. And often what would happen is you would have a system that kind of mostly sort of worked with a bunch of scripting and a bunch of, you know, hand tuning and stuff, but it didn't really work. And then, again, to add insult to injury, the problem is once you kind of fail over to something, how do you get back to operation? And how do you protect that? That's a huge issue with a lot of high availability software. Essentially, I've failed over, um, it's running, that's all well and good, but I'm no longer protecting that. I no longer have HA for that. Now what happens if that dies too? Well, you're kind of up a creek. And this solution uh, attacks exactly that problem in a way that is really pretty cool for SAP HANA. That being said, Sios is a small company. Uh, they have limited resources. Uh, they're very focused on you know, this solution. Um, I think that it's definitely worth checking it out. Again, if you're a, if you're a HANA user, um, beyond that, well, I just can't wait to see what they do with this technology in other environments. If you're about ready to start building out IoT networks, you want to access one of the largest one around, Amazon is ready for you. Amazon Sidewalk is now open for developers to start testing. Sidewalk is Amazon's IoT-focused solution for edge devices that utilizes Bluetooth Low Energy, or BLE, and 900 megahertz wireless networks to provide coverage. Sidewalk is generated from Amazon's Ring cameras and Echo speakers, of all things, and it has 90% coverage across the United States, according to some reports. Yeah, there's a lot of those things out there in the wild. Uh, Tom, what is Amazon hoping to accomplish this, this, and are you concerned at all about this solution? Well, would I be concerned about Jeff Bezos having a whole bunch of devices connecting in my house and being able to cover the country? <laughs> no, I'm not worried at all. I kid, I kid. Um, I love what Amazon is doing with this uh, this technical uh, coup, if you want to call it that. Is basically they take one of those things over on my desk and one of those things that's attached to my wall outside of my house, and they use it to broadcast, you know, BLE, uh, you know, a couple dozen feet out, and then a 900 megahertz network much further out. And, and you may recall 900 megahertz as the thing that cordless phones used to use that allowed you to use them in the kitchen downstairs when you were talking on the phone. I know, home phones, how quaint. But the value there is that for devices that don't need to carry a lot of data, it's a really great way to provide a, a, a large connectivity area. I mean, you, you can't beat it. It doesn't get beat down by rain or trees or, you know, it 900 megahertz beam width is a lot wider so it can go around buildings a lot better. And that is valuable for a lot of IoT or edge focused devices that are, you know, maybe uh, think about an edge compute device that's doing a lot of the computation power there on the device and maybe just sending the updates back to the cloud. That's a magical way to do it. The problem, as you mentioned, is the fact that, did you know that Sidewalk's been around for a couple of years? Do you know why it's been around for a couple of years and you don't know anything about it? Is because when they originally announced Sidewalk, um, it was a little bit of a ham-handed rollout because uh, they turned it on for everybody. Like they just announced it. They're like, oh, did we mention that it's live broadcasting out of your speaker and your doorbell right now? And everyone went, I'm sorry, what? No, no, we're not doing that. And so there was this big, massive pushback against Amazon to um, to shut that down and, and kind of take their time, uh, build in protections, roll it out. 
And now a lot of people are comparing this to Apple's Find My Protocol. And you may recall that you can now get an AirTag and it is a, it, people are like, oh, it's like an Apple tile. No, it's actually not because it uses um, Apple devices like an iPhone, iPad, anything that has a cellular radio in it is almost like a, a sensing spot. So that's why your AirTag can be picked up when it's nowhere near a wireless access point is because Apple phones are detecting the uh, the signals from the AirTag and transmitting them into the cloud so that Apple goes, yeah, yeah, your suitcase was over there. I like the idea, but what Apple did is they secured the network first. They made sure that no one could use it for nefarious purposes. And you probably have seen this, like my son has a pair of AirPods. And every time he gets close to me for more than five minutes, I get a thing that pops up on my screen saying, did you know there's a pair of AirPods that are traveling with you that can tell people where you're at? Like, I love the fact that Apple has built this in. What is Jeff Bezos going to do with it? Well, Bezos is kind of out of the out of the loop now. So it's Andy Jassy and the rest of the people at Amazon. What are they going to do with it? What do you think their advertisers are going to want to do with it? Because that's what they're going to do. Um, I hope that they're going to do this the right way. I hope they're going to build in security controls. They're going to make it opt in instead of opt out. Um, I'm hoping they're not going to do things like, oh, I don't know, forward all of the traffic that goes through the sidewalk network to law enforcement without a warrant. They don't have a history of that, right? Oh, wait. Yeah, they do. Um, they need to build this secure because here's the thing. Normal people aren't going to care. Like they're going to use it no matter what. Remember when ATT Wi-Fi was the most used wireless network in the world because it was at every Starbucks and it was pre-programmed into every iPhone? Well, we've moved past that. It's a little bit better now. The normal people aren't going to care. The problem is, is that the people like me and you and all of our wonderful listeners out there who are a little bit more security conscious, they're like, I don't trust about this. Um, they're going to raise a big stink if this starts causing problems. And that's one of the problems that I think ultimately is going to be um, something important to discuss in edge computing. IoT focused the devices or edge compute nodes is this idea of what happens to that data at the edge. How, how can you control who sees it, where it goes, how it's being uh, used over networks, what kind of security functions do we need? It's a pretty big thing that a lot of people are going to need to think about. I know this isn't the closer look section, Tom, but um, I'm going to take a closer look at this too, because again, as you mentioned, with Edge Field Day, it's interesting to sort of consider the implications of this for edge computing. Another story that I want to bring in here is that there's been a lot of uh, discussion this week on Hacker News when people discovered that uh, Apple's iOS includes Passpoint networks from the major carriers and you can't um, disable them for some carriers. Essentially, what they've, what they've found, and again, this is what caused a big blow up this week, was that um, I believe the carrier was T-Mobile, that if you disable it, which is really hard and finicky and weird to do, it actually re-enables after a few minutes. Now, I can say I've got Verizon on mine and their Passpoint networks can be disabled and stay disabled, at least for the last 24 hours on my phone, if you want to try it. But the point is, um, it's not that these products are bad. In fact, I would say that Passpoint is objectively good. And if you look at some of the pr pr presentations, especially from companies like Aruba at Mobility Field Day and Aruba Atmosphere, you'll find that these things are actually pretty well designed and they have security in mind and they, and they can provide a lot of good, useful service for end users. The problem is that we live in a world of distrust and I don't blame people for distrusting it. As you mentioned, um, you know, we've had companies in the past, including some of these exact companies, enabling services without telling users, um, sharing user data, 
Um, I mean, the same week that uh, people discover that T-Mobile's Passpoint can't be disabled, T-Mobile uh, is announcing that they're now correlating, quote, billions of data points about consumers and selling that data to advertisers. You wonder why people don't trust these companies. You know what I mean? It's like, um, how about we do this right, folks? Passpoint, when I heard about it, I mean, you and I were together at this point, you know, we, we, you know, we we're at the event together, they're announcing this, we're looking at it and we're saying, wow, Passpoint is incredible. Offloading cellular data to Wi-Fi to have better penetration within rooms, having it done securely with authentication off of your SIM card, having it done with, you know, encrypted uh, backhauls, um, that's great. And the idea of um, basically crowdsourcing connectivity uh, you know, I mean, you think about what people are talking about with things like LoRaWAN and with shared Wi-Fi networks and so on. Again, it sounds like, honestly, an objectively great idea from a technical perspective. The problem is that these companies just keep flubbing it from a privacy perspective. It's like, you know, you have to get buy-in, you have to get permission, you have to ensure people and get people's trust that they're using it properly. And I think it's really interesting that even one of the companies that is more trusted by consumers, Apple, suffered a huge backlash to the crowdsourcing of AirTag data, even though they thought about security, they communicated about security and privacy ahead of time. Even despite that, consumers didn't, weren't ready to trust one of the most trusted companies. Now take that same thought and now apply it to some of the least trusted companies. And it's no surprise at all that they're having uh, concerns about rolling this stuff out. I really would love to talk more about this. And, and really, this is one of the things I think that we're going to be diving into more and more at both Mobility Field Day and Edge Field Day. Yeah, I agree. Um, Stephen, we got one more story that we want to take a look at here. Um, application modernization platform V Function has a new trick up their sleeve. They have a new continuous modernization manager that allows you to refactor your code with V function and keep it up to date on an ongoing basis. Now, I know that I am not a huge fan of technical debt. And one of the common arguments is, oh, I'm going to have to refactor all of my code. So this seems like a pretty worthy addition to people that are trying to keep things updated to, you know, jibe with whatever the latest um, offerings are. Stephen, what do you think about V functions offerings? Yeah, I've talked to V Function a few times now, and I've got to say I'm pretty impressed by this solution. Um, I'm always impressed by companies that know what they do and know what they don't do and are honest about what they're good at. This is another one of those products that is really sort of micro-targeted at a very useful, necessary, and um, honestly, probably pretty profitable niche. Essentially, companies out there running things like WebLogic and WebSphere as monolithic applications are asking themselves, how do I bring this into the modern world of cloud and microservices? Well, one way to do it is just to throw it all in a container and hope for the best. But that's you know not a good way to do it because essentially you're still stuck with technical debt. You're basically running the same old thing in the cloud and that can get very, very expensive very fast. Essentially, we could see companies with basically gigabyte sized containers running on services and um well that's not going to be really financially viable also you're still you still have all the the stuff all the cruft everything so v function is kind of cool like i said this is a, a, essentially a company that delivered a modernization platform a few years back that basically takes those applications rips them apart translates them into microservices and deploys them on a modern application 
they came out with an assessor tool recently as well. And now with continuous modernization, the idea is that they're going to basically have a piece of software that will not just um, stop the technical debt you already had, but also continually refactor the applications to take advantage of new services, new concepts, and basically bring it into the future. But not all applications. And again, this is important. If you have a platform that says we do everything for everybody, then they do nothing for nobody. vFunction is really good if you've got these specific applications based on Java and .NET, and you want to bring them into the future. If, if, if you have something else, well, there's maybe some other solutions, or maybe you just got to work on that. But if this is your niche, then it makes a lot of sense to look at vFunction. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of technology that's out there that's super exciting that you're going to want to investigate. And uh, you should take some time and do that uh, because we are at the end of our rundown news stories for this week. But we do have some exciting things coming up. Um, if you love seeing me at events, you have a whole lineup coming up in just the next month because I'm going to be out next week in Silicon Valley having networking field day. Uh, going on. So Stephen will have a co-host, but if you want to tune in to Networking Field Day after you're done watching the rundown, we would love that because we have uh, presentations coming from great companies like Backbox, Itential, uh, Kentic, and more. So uh, make sure you check out the website for details and schedule on that. Then two weeks after that, I'm going to be in Las Vegas for Aruba Atmosphere. We're going to be doing Networking Field Day experience there. Uh, we got a great lineup of mobility and networking delegates. They're going to be talking about uh, some of the cool stuff that Aruba has been working on, some of the acquisitions that they've made and some of, uh, you know, the, the ways that they're going to be doing a lot of this, uh, you know, edge computing, edge networking type stuff. Um, probably join the Passpoint Network as soon as I walk into the building. Um, so if you want to see more details on that, of course, techfieldday.com for the schedule and everything like that. And then about three weeks after that, we're going to be having our next mobility field day event. And that is a packed lineup of presenters of companies that are very much focused on the hardware that is going to be running Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E, of uh, the analytics that allow you to make sure that it's actually working right. And uh, there's even a couple of companies that are focused on some AI technologies that you're definitely going to want to learn more about. Um, you can uh, see the lineup of presenters on our website, techfieldday.com. Uh, we'll also be adding lists of the delegates, the, uh, the influencers that you want to listen to, uh, kind of ask the good questions and uh, dig into the technologies a little bit more. So we are very excited to be bringing you more great Tech Field Day events. Like I said, techfieldday.com for all of your needs to figure out when the schedules are going to be and uh, all of the great video that you're going to want to listen to. And that will just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. Um, thank you to all of you listeners out there, whether you're consuming this on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo, whether you're listening to us in your favorite podcast uh, application of choice, just look for the Gestalt IT Rundown, or you're reading the show notes and leaving comments and sharing them on Twitter. Um, however you want to share this news with the world, we love that because it allows more people to hear our take on things and to understand uh, a little bit of the technology that goes on behind the news. Um, I know that there's a lot of news out there that, you know, was probably flooding your news feeds, probably written by AIs or big geopolitical stuff. But we focus on the enterprise here because honestly, that's what you need to hear. That's what involves your day-to-day -day business. And that's why we are going to continue to curate the news, tell you what's important, what you need to be paying attention to, and uh, maybe make your Wednesdays a little bit brighter, say around 1230 Eastern time every Wednesday, whether it's myself and Stephen hosting one of us with one of our great co-hosts in our lineup. Um, you never know what you're going to get. 
uh, except news. That's what you're going to get. The best news and our take on it. So we hope that you'll tune in with us next week and every week uh, going forward. And uh, until then, thank you very much. And we hope to see you soon.